This podcast is presented to you by Pastors Tom and Bonnie Deschal from Celebration Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more information, please visit celebrationmen.org. Today, I want to just speak to you about a topic that's been on my heart for quite a while. And uh, you'll need to pay close attention to this message if you're going to grasp it. Uh, It's not an easy topic. Uh, It's a pertinent one. It's very relevant to where we are today. But uh, sometimes we have to wrestle with scriptures that are, for some people, hard to understand. But I am going to try to do that with you and together hopefully walk through this and uh, help elevate our understanding of what is happening in the world today. And I uh, have entitled this message, Narratives, Narratives Are Being Weaponized, Are Being Weaponized. You know what a weaponized narrative is? A weaponized narrative? Or are you going to find out today? In Romans, the third chapter, the Apostle Paul wrote this, or he said this. He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. That's a powerful scripture. And to the untrained listener, to the untrained hearer, to the untrained watchman, That may be something to wrestle with. But there's an old proverb that says this. Truth is the best advertising, propaganda, and public relations tool. Truth. Fact-supported truth is a powerful narrative. Unfortunately, the truth can be hidden, ignored, obscured, obscured, inundated by error, creating what is identified as a weaponized narrative. The concept of a narrative has become increasingly popular in the world today. Uh, This was really popularized in uh, the politics of America. I think you're seeing it even now with the impeachment proceedings that are going on. There is so many narratives that you can hardly get to the truth. Uh, The facts are belied by so many different presumptions and narratives. Uh, There was another case in the United States of a young Catholic boy who went to a a, a pro-life rally and he wore a MAGA cap. And uh, I don't know if you saw it, but he was standing on the steps of the Capitol waiting for his bus to return with a few of his friends. And an American Indian, a native, uh, began to feel like the fact that the kid wore a cap was distracting and detracting from his narrative. He was there in protest and he was beating his drum and somehow this American native came forward and beat the drum in the face of this kid and the news media picked up the narrative and said this kid had been harassing this poor Indian and oh, it blew up huge, 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 huge. Well, last week, uh, the young boy sued the newspapers and the uh, and CNN in particular for lying, and he had a two hundred and fifty million dollar lawsuit against them, and they settled because you see the narrative wasn't true, but the narrative had gone all across the news media. So he has about fifteen more cases that are going to be heard against all the news media that, and, and now there's a precedent that they lied, that the narrative wasn't true. This concept of the narrative has been trumpeted by talk show hosts, by news anchors, politicians around the world, probably over the past decade. Promoting the ideas of a narrative really implies manipulation of perception to ensure a particular outcome during a debate between proponents of opposing views. Narratives as currently being employed have a loose or at least a tangential 
relationship to truth. Increasingly, the idea of a narrative is being weaponized in our contemporary society. society. And in fact, we're already seeing it in our own nation of Zimbabwe. We have weaponized our narrative. We tell the people one thing, even though it's not true. And because it's on television or because it was on radio or because it's in the newspaper, many cannot discern. I don't know about you, but we, I've been told that the dollar is now one-to-one -one, or was one-to-one. -one. And I'm told that debts are now RTGS debts. We have been told that we are the strongest currency in Africa. <laughs> but none of that can be substantiated with truth. The LGBTQ agendas are being raised as mainstream issues now, along with abortion and women's rights narratives. Zimbabwe is in a condition that we are in, we're told, because of sanctions. These are narratives. Most of them are not true or relevant, or at least they're not able to be debated. They're pushed out with any real debate, without any real facts, just an, agenda's backed, an agenda backed by plenty of cash and often controlled by political agendas and often complicated or at least having a complicit media. You see, the movement to weaponize the narrative was inevitable. Since the concept has been aggressively promoted by the media in support of favorite or favored political views, narrative warfare embraces more than public relations, more than propaganda campaigns. Narrative warfare employs weaponized narratives that are spun from highly selective truth, outright lies, false accusations, distorted and altered quotations, emotional appeals, sensational outrage, fear, fear mongering, blame shifting, intimidating threats, victim posturing, virtue signaling, and fabricated imagery. That's pretty descriptive, wouldn't you say? These are all facets of contemporary argument. Indeed, these disruptive, often destructive techniques have been in the human political and psychological warfare kit since our first parents first appeared in the Garden of Eden. Tragically, modern mass media and digital communications can quickly and pervasively spread weaponized narratives, often without challenge. Emotional arguments tend to overwhelm logic and reason. I've often said this, the higher the emotion, the lower the clarity of thought. And I don't know about you, but there seems to be a lot of emotion today with very little clarity of thought. A lot of emotion today. I, I'm always surprised when you can speak to one of our government ministers, but if you touch one of their little hot-button issues, if you touch the truth, they blow up. They, they can't have a conversation. They just have emotional narrative. Narrative warfare advocates or advocates argue that a powerful psychological weapon is capable of many things, including influencing national and international opinion. We're still weaponized narratives are even being employed among believers. And the inevitable result is devastating to our faith. When I speak of weaponized narratives, I'm speaking of the creation and employment of a narrative that drives the activities of those who hear the narrative. We are witnessing an increased appeal to narratives in many church circles rather than the truth. The narratives sound reasonable, but they're false. They have the ring of truthiness, although they lack evidence or logic. Oftentimes the narratives have a ring of veracity, though they do not tell the whole story. They are partial truths. And remember this, a half-truth is a whole lie. That's what makes them so dangerous. The unwary are susceptible to succumbing 
to the error promoted by these false narratives. And I don't want you to be the unwary. I don't want our church to become unaware of what the enemy is doing and how the church itself is being infiltrated. The message I'm bringing today is intended to challenge us to think. Now, that might hurt some of your brains today. But I want you to think with a renewed mind. To have the mind of Christ. To think like a Christian. I want us to consider some of the narratives that are mistakenly treated as valid in the realm of faith. I'm challenging each of us to weigh what is promoted through these various narratives in light of what is revealed in the word of God. What does God have to say about this? I want us as the people of God to lay a foundation in our lives and in our church that equips us for honorable and truthful service. I want to encourage believers to think, to act, to act with discretion and to serve God as they, as he would have us serve his people and serve each other. There are some marginal, there are some narratives that marginalize revelatory or biblical truths. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to quote him again. He says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. See, the Apostle Paul is presenting a solemn truth. What he's saying is, we are unrighteous. Just tap your neighbor say, we are unrighteous. However, however, the Bible says that our unrighteousness is what reveals the righteousness of God. How many of you know that because you are unrighteous, it makes God all the more righteous? I don't know about you, every time I come and worship in this church, I find myself saying, oh God, you are holy and I'm not. I know I'm not. My first position before I worship him is forgive me for my shortcomings this week. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my unrighteousness. If we recognize our condition, it means that there's a standard by which we gauge our actions. If there's a standard and we recognize that standard, then we are accountable to the one who judges by that standard. Does that make sense? So the particular point that the Apostle Paul is making in this verse is really very sobering for anyone who is actually grappling with the thought that we have to give an account to the one who is qualified by his inherent righteousness to be our judge. It means there is a judgment. It means that we are held to an outside standard. A standard that is outside our own condition. It means that judgment is pending. For all of us. For all mankind. There is a judgment that is coming. Now, it shouldn't be surprising that most of all of the narratives that have been constructed throughout time revolve around an attempt to evade the responsibility of one's own character. The narratives that we construct seek to inaccurately represent God while dismissing the, weak, the wickedness of man's fallen character. Ultimately, all narratives attempt to avoid facing our pending and well-justified judgment. Since time immemorial, sinful people have endeavored to marginalize God. Even those of us who are well-meaning are just as guilty of constructing narratives to fit our particular point of view. Nevertheless, a favorite effort of sinful people is to construct a narrative that sounds reasonable so long as the, that narrative is not too closely examined. The narrative we construct presents a God who is pleasant, who is nice. This God is inclined to grant mankind's desires rather than being holy and being righteous. A lot of us like that God. We've created God in the image that we want him to be. You see, what people want is good. Something good. Holiness and righteousness are bad. You see, the newly constructed God is a fantasy of mankind. A fabrication of minds enamored with this dying world without commitment 
to a true and living God. Now, this is a dangerous construct. Price precisely because it's attractive. It's an attractive construct, but it's dangerous. So what are some of the narratives that I want to bring forward to you? There, there are some very obvious ones. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I would love to get into them. There's, there's one that's going around today, and I'm not going to preach about it, but it concerns me. And it's this idea that somehow all churches are supposed to come under one head. We're all to be unified. And so even now amongst many Protestant movements, there's a move to say, oh, we're all going to go back under the Pope and become Catholic again. One world religion. I'm telling you that is a dangerous narrative. It's not true, first of all. Secondly, what was the Reformation all about if we're all going to go back under the Catholic Church? What about our forefathers that died? And what about the five solas? Sola Scriptura. Does the Bible speak? Can we believe the Bible? Or do we have to have it interpreted to us by a pope? See, there's a, some real arguments there, but the uneducated, the uninformed, the ill-informed, the people that have little doctrine or little understanding of history are being wooed into a false narrative. But I digress. The first narrative I want to discuss was popularized some years ago by a major evangelical organization. It's simply this. This message about 40 years ago started to come out as the primary message of evangelism. It was that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That was the whole message. God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, this particular narrative is popular and it's loved by many and it's been repeated often and forcefully during the past 40 years. The narrative certainly has an appeal, beginning, beginning as it does with love. Love. Who can get mad at a loving God? But the scripture teaches, and here we see in 1 John 4, Verse 13 through 21, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love perfected with us, so that we, by, the, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, does not love his, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I don't think there's anyone here that would argue against the truth that God loves all mankind. God loves us all. After all, God created us. God created mankind. And he gave us life. He breathed the breath of life into all of us. God does love the creature that he made. The evidence for this positive affirmation is that he sent his son to be the savior of the world. You've all heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So God's love is not in question, but God's love is not that icky, treacle, sweet sort of emotion that gives people a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's not God's love. God's love is real. It's practical. It's tangible. It's strong love. Above all else, God's love is transformative. It's transformative. Those who receive the love of God cannot remain as they were. 
when we receive Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives. And through that love that we've received, through that indwelling presence of Almighty God, He begins to change us. You see, the one great problem with this particular narrative is the revelation of God's hatred. You see, we love to talk about God's love, but what about God's hatred? Perhaps you'll recall the statement from the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi said this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste the hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. The Apostle Paul uses this passage when he's talking about God's election of the righteous. He says, it is, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, this brings a twist to the God who's all loving and loves everything and everyone. See, throughout the Bible we see that the Lord is capable of hatred. Proverbs says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. God hates these things. God hates them. The psalmist carries on and says this, and this is a startling insight to the character of God. In Psalm 7, verses 11 through 13, he says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Whew. Now, I believe that God is love. I do. But we must never forget that he is holy. Amen. And his holiness excludes unrighteousness. Unrighteousness cannot appear before God's presence. Any who fail to receive the grace of God, anyone who has never been made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, must face God's wrath. Jesus warns in Luke eleven five. 5. He says, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But there's only one who can cast into hell. It's not the devil. It's God. Fear him. The fact that God does hate does mean that he it, does, it doesn't mean that he's some kind of a cosmic killjoy you know he's not some kind of a celestial ogre that is constantly glaring down at mankind you know I, I grew up in a church where man I'll tell you, you I just knew God had a baseball bat and the minute I moved out of line he was got to get me I was so afraid of doing anything and and, and fear is not a good motivator He's not trying to seek opportunity to strike down someone who's having a little bit of joy or happens to engage in some pleasantry. God seeks the best for all of mankind. And, 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 and that includes your joy. He wants us to be joyful. You know, we often confuse happiness and joy. We often get those two mixed up. You know, mankind has a tendency to constantly and fruitlessly pursue happiness. But happiness is never promised in the word of God. God never promised you to be happy. Joy is the heritage of the children of God. Joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Not happiness. Many people pursue happiness. And that's where you get tripped up. You think you're supposed to be happy. And in fact, God says, I'll give you joy. John was, John, or Jesus promised his disciples in John 15... Verses 10 through 11, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. 
these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, Jesus wants his followers to possess joy. He desires that the quality of joy that we have is overflowing joy, full, the fullness of joy. See, overflowing joy is the reward, it's the promise, it's the heritage of those who love their master, who love Jesus. Jesus was preparing his disciples one day for his departure. Listen to what he had to say. In John 16, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask me, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You see, the Lord has promised to pour out his goodness so that his followers, you and I, may overflow with an abundance of joy. Now, that's genuine joy that he wants for us to have. There's another narrative that's been weaponized. It says, God is too good to judge a person. You see, this narrative is an expression of the philosophy, some philosophy that is known as universalism. Universalists believe that God is so good that he's not judging any of his creation. In fact, that God is so good, he's not even going to judge the devil and the demons. They're all going to be saved because God is love. Now, you may have never heard of the term universalism, but this is a message that's creeping into the church. Some of the great teachers of the day have forsaken the faith following a universal teaching that God, that everybody's going to be saved no matter how you live your life, no matter what you do. God is such love that he's just going to permit you to live however you want to. Here's what I've come to understand. If you don't like Jesus today, if you're struggling with Jesus, not struggling, I mean, I think we struggle in our faith sometimes, but if you don't love Christ today, if you don't like to be holy today, if you're not pursuing holiness today, you won't love him in heaven. You're not going to like heaven. He is heaven. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. So if you don't like him on earth, you're not going to like him any better in heaven. So why would you want to go there? <laughs> Romans, this is our verse. It says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. See, the instruction by the Apostle Paul is crafted in such a way that we must answer in the affirmative concerning God's judgment. Throughout the New Testament, there are warnings concerning the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Let me just give you a few examples to illustrate the point. When he opens his letter to the saints at Rome, Paul says this in Romans 1.18. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In Ephesians, after listing a host of wicked acts, sexual immorality, all impurity, greed, filthiness, uh, foolish talk, crude jesting, the word of God gives this warning. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see, those who engage in these practices, those who engage in this immorality, this lawlessness, this, this turning away from God, or who tolerate them are identified as the sons of disobedience. And this clearly indicates that God means to punish those identified as such. Wrath of God. What's the wrath of God? It's against the sons of disobedience. There's another passage of scripture that warns against such acts. It's found in the book of Colossians. He's writing to Colossian Christians. These are the Christians. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, and 6, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. You see, if you and I believe that the Bible is authoritative, if we believe it is the word of God, the Lord not only disapproves of such acts, but he holds those who engage in these acts responsible for their own actions. His wrath is going to be poured out on all sinful people. Now, I don't know about you, but let's just admit it. That we are fearful of a God who is holy. Is anybody in that boat with me? Yeah, I'm fearful of a God who is holy. You know, intuitively, we prefer a God characterized by what we might describe as benevolent neglect. Wouldn't you rather have that God? Like some of our parenting, we have benevolent neglect. We overlook our children's faults to their detriment. Anybody, just tap your neighbor and say, I think he's talking about you today. See, we want a God who delights to give us what we want. A God who doesn't interfere with our mad pursuit of getting what we want. A God who keeps his hands off of our lives, allowing us to do whatever it is we want. Because our desires dictate the sort of God we imagine we want. And because of that, we choose to focus on God's goodness to the exclusion of recognizing his holiness. Does that make sense? You see, by exalting our own desires over the character of God, we craft a narrative. A narrative that shields us from the harsh reality of God's demand of holiness in our lives. Now, I know I'm speaking in sweeping generalities when I make such statements. Nevertheless, most of the world is angered at the thought that we are not in control of our own lives, that we should need to give an account to anyone, especially to a living God. See, we want a genial God who smilingly approves of our choices. He dotes on us and he gives us whatever we want. That's why Peter's words are so troubling to us. And we don't like to read these sometimes, but this is the word of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, he says, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Now, that's a mouthful. I know. And some of you are saying, wow, I don't get it. I don't understand. 
Study it. Go back and study the scriptures. What God's saying is that, hey, listen. God's wrath is coming upon us if we don't understand that judgment has to be given. But Jesus paid for your salvation, but you must receive it. You choose. See, one of the arguments or one of the narratives of universalism, and now surprisingly it's creeping into those who are professed Christians and are obviously untaught, is Here's what they say. They say, why? why? I, I, I would never throw a dog in the fire. So God wouldn't condemn a sinner into et- the eternal flames of fire. And I, I, I agree. I don't think any of us would throw a dog in the fire, would we? Would you pick your dog up and throw him in the fire? I think such an action betrays a sick mind or even to contemplate such a thing. Now, even though I don't particularly like dogs, I don't want to see any dogs suffer. I mean, we've had dozens of dogs in our house with children. Everybody wanted dogs. And, you know, our dogs knew their name from me. I, they, I, I named them all. Down, out, in your box. <laughs> in your box, out, down, down, out. They all had their same names, you know. Uh, the children had different names for them, but those are my names for all the dogs. But I never wanted to see them suffer. In fact, I was the one who worried that if they didn't get fed, I had to go make sure they had fed. If they didn't have water, I had to make sure there was water. Because my children weren't doing that. But this narrative argues that because I am kind, at least according to my own standards, God is at least as good as me. I don't believe I would torment anyone. And those holding to this particular narrative take this to mean that God won't pronounce judgment that causes eternal pain to anyone. What isn't immediately apparent is those advancing this argument have brought God down to their level, the level of a mere human, rather than raising people up to God's level. You see, we like to make God in our image, but God says, no, you must understand me according to who he is. And this is where these narratives begin to fail. Let me iterate again. I would not throw a dog into the fire. But the implication that eternal judgment is somehow gratuitous torture and no one will accuse God of delighting in torture. The Lord God has no pleasure, the Bible says, in the death of sinners. God, speaking through Ezekiel, says this, Ezekiel 18. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Now, I know that God's pleading with Israel in this case, but it applies to all people. God doesn't want any to perish. God, in Ezekiel 33, 11, appeals through the same prophet and says this, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? You see, we blame God. We want to live evil, wicked lives and then blame God for judgment. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says God is pleading with us to turn from our wickedness and our evilness so that we might live eternally with him. What is missed, what is ignored when people appeal to this narrative is that God doesn't want to send anyone to hell. In fact, God casts no one into the fires of hell. People who reject the grace of God have positioned themselves with the devil and with demons. And those demons and that devil are opposed to God. And by aligning with him, with your father the devil, you sentence yourself to the same eternal condemnation that was sent for the devil only. The fact is that people do choose to pursue their own desires. And they know the consequences of what is chosen. And they know that it leads to eternal death. Is that not the warning presented in the word of God? Look, 
Read in Romans 3, 23. The Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Because this is true, the warning has to be announced. Romans 6, 23, the first part of the verse says, and the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and there's wages to be collected. Let me ask you a question. Does somebody collect your wages when you've worked all week long? Well, in my case, that's true. My wife does. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you don't send somebody to get your wages. You say, no, 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 no. I worked for it. I get it. Well, the wages of your sin is death. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God made a provision for your sin. God made a provision for your wages. He gave it to us. The free gift of God is eternal life. So let me just say it this way. If someone stumbles into hell, that person will stumble into eternal damnation. Having stepped over the grace of God. Having ignored the pleas of the godly. And the warnings of those who are saved. If one is lost, they will have decided through deliberate neglect that they prefer the prospect of eternity without the mercy of God to the glory that flows from the grace of God. We must understand that lost people choose and they receive the consequences of their choices. Does that make sense? Can I give you one more narrative and then we'll close? They're all related today. There's another narrative that's very concerning. And it says this, when you're dead, that's it. You're finished. You're done. There's nothing else after death. That's creeping into the world today. Just live however you want to live because, hey, when you die, it's all over anyway. I know it's a variant of earlier narratives that we've considered, but uh, I think it's necessary, it's necessary to address this narrative. If for no other reason than that the unthinking imagine it is unanswerable. There are many that don't believe this is even answerable. This narrative is wishful thinking. It's a case of people whistling as they go by the graveyard. <laughs> How many of you have ever been by the graveyard? We don't hang around there, do we? It's not a matter of conviction. This isn't something that's growing out of what is written in the Word of God. Does death end it all? Does it? Is that the end? No matter how much an individual may wish that that is the case, every expectation leads us to reject this view. How do I know? Why is it that in this world we demand accountability of those who do evil? Why would you want somebody to be accountable for the evil they do in this world? Why do you want a judgment? And since we're incapable of exacting retribution on the wicked in this world after death, then we have to expect justice beyond this existence. The problem with those who hold on to a narrative that is the fact that by holding on to a narrative, you become wed to your narrative. And when you're wed to your narrative, to what you've created, you're more in love with it than you are in seeking truth. There's some people who have woven their narrative so tightly that they don't seek truth anymore. Such, such narratives are the stuff of modern journalism. Much of our journalism is nothing more than narratives being presented to us. I don't know if you saw the story of Jesse Smollett in America. He's an actor. And... Uh, he fabricated a story of being assaulted because he was black or maybe it was because he was a homosexual. And he claimed he was assaulted by two men whom he identified as far-right thugs. But the Chicago police demonstrated that the man was lying. Here's the narrative that's so, that was so hurtful to this. The story became the means for news outlets. It became the means for politicians, for Hollywood stars and starlets to verbally attack and threaten those whom they considered to be politically right of their own position. 
The narrative became the story. The narrative became the story. Even after it was demonstrated that the actor had lied, the apologists continued to argue the necessity of the story. Thus a lie enters into the thinking of the people, the populace, as though it was a truth. And so it is. Narratives will almost always mask reality, deceiving those who buy into the narrative. We've not recovered from the narrative about Zimbabwe's years of hyperinflation. We still have a narrative out there about what happened. We talk to it as though it just happened. You know, our dollar just hyperinflated. We've never gone to the truth. No one's ever been prosecuted. We have a narrative about $13 billion of diamonds that were stolen. But we just don't ever go to the truth. We just talk about the narrative. We've never recovered from the narrative around Gakura Handi. How many people were slaughtered? Oh, it was the days of madness, is the narrative. Days of madness, it requires judgment. We as a nation suffered under an administration that repeatedly created narratives rather than seeking truth. You see, narratives seem so attractive. We've bought into the false comfort of promoting narratives rather than dealing with reality. Grave as that situation is for our nation, the adoption of narratives among the people of God creates a real and present danger that threatens the whole foundation of righteousness. You see, the real danger of narratives is that they easily become substitutes for facts, for truth. You see, when narratives are substituted for facts, then those people who have accepted the narrative have become wedded to their narrative. And they tend to deny what they're hearing because it doesn't fit their narrative. Someone overheard one of our politicians saying this of one of his colleagues. The politician said, I reject your facts. Colleague's response was honorable. These are not my facts. They are facts. <laughs> what I happen to believe is ultimately immaterial. What matters is the truth. The truth is independent of my assessment. What God has written in his word is truth. As a young preacher, I used to teach, and I still believe the saying. It says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But as I've grown, and as impressive as that sounds, at first glance it is impressive, but my analytical mind has forced me to correct the saying. God said it, that settles it. You see, it doesn't matter what I believe about a given issue. What matters is what God said. I need to know what God says and not what others wish he had said. Therefore, we are not attempting to construct a narrative. We are carefully presenting what God has revealed through his word. This is the truth expressed through the Apostle Paul. In Timothy, he said this, do your best to present yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. Our responsibility, yours and my responsibility, as witnesses of Christ, as witnesses to this gospel, is to not make our teaching or the teaching of the word of God palatable or acceptable to those who hear us. Our responsibility is to strive for accuracy in declaring what God has already revealed. The spirit of God will work in the hearts of those who hear us as we teach, as we live this life. John 16, verse 8, 
The New English translation says this, prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He says the Holy Spirit will prove the world. It's the Holy Spirit who works in our lives concerning sin and judgment and righteousness. See, as followers of Christ, you and I are responsible to know what the Word of God says. That know the Word that He's given to us. We're, but you and I are susceptible to being put off our stride because often we're ignorant of the devil's devices. We're ignorant of what the Lord has said. There are many believers today that frightens me that fail to have a viable theology. Not having a theology is the most dangerous theology of all. The theology we espouse too often consists of a few little trite phrases that are often divorced from our daily life. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. We have this little little cliches, but they're divorced from what reality is in our lives. You see, if our theology becomes stale, or if our theology is based on a false narrative, it can become detrimental to our faith. It can even be outright dangerous. See, many want a theology that makes our life easy today, makes it easy now. Kind of with heaven thrown in as a bonus. Guess what? You get everything you want now, and Boop, heaven too. We want to live as though our reward was given to us now. But that's not how the Apostle Paul viewed life. And he wrote of his fear. He says, I fear that having preached to others, I myself might be a castaway. I confess that I have that same fear. I constantly check what I'm teaching. Investing time in prayer and study to seek God's guidance. You know, I don't want to lapse into delivering narratives. Rather, my concern is that together we may know the truth, that we may honor the Lord who redeems us. I desire for those of us who have been redeemed to walk in holiness, to pursue a life that honors our Lord. I'm convinced that God redeems us and that he gives us eternal life. I do not believe that he will cast us away when we sin. But we can dishonor him. We can lose rewards and cease to be effective in our service to his cause. I'm distressed at the thought that I may act in a manner that dishonors the Lord. The Lord who redeemed me. Therefore, I'm encouraging all of us to seek what pleases him. Let's be diligent to seek his will so that we can glorify him. Let's seek his kingdom. This is what I want for his holy people. I want us to walk in holiness. I want us to choose wisely how we respond to the challenges of life. Paul voiced his concern for the saints in Corinth. These are the same concerns I have for you. These are the same concerns I have for you as you walk with our master and our savior. Paul revealed his heart when he wrote to the saints in Corinth. He said this in 2 Corinthians verse 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse two, three, 2 and 3. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I don't know if you feel that, but as a pastor, I want you to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I don't want you to be led astray by deceiving narratives by the devil. See, I want you. Those of you who God gave you as my charge in Christ to walk in purity before the Lord. 
I want you to avoid adopting narratives, choosing rather to pursue truth. Truth through the knowledge of the word of God. My desire is to live in a way that I need not be ashamed and so that you'll never be ashamed of me either. Above all, I want to honor Christ, the Lord, by a holy life. If you're here today and you're lost, you don't know Jesus, listen to what this call of God says. In Acts 16, verse 31, he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Here is life, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, salvation is simple. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's life. This is life. If you're willing to receive it. In Christ, you find hope and you find forgiveness of sin. Do this now. Believe him. Be saved. For those of us that are saved, let's live a holy and blameless life. Let's return to purity. This is a new decade. It's a new year. It's a day of watching. Let's watch over ourselves first. Watch over others and help each other. Let's not buy into the world's narratives. Whether they be natural and especially spiritual. There's such deception. The Bible says the end of the world would be earmarked by one thing. Deception. Even the very elect of God will be deceived. Can we redouble our efforts to seek out truth? Let's all stand. Just take the hand of the person next to you. Just grab their hand. Reach across the aisles. Just reach across the aisles. Just touch somebody. Touch somebody's hand. Grab them. Don't squeeze hard. Just hold their hand. Just everybody take someone's hand. Today, I want to uh, encourage you. Would you say this after me? Heavenly Father, I'm asking today that you would protect my heart with your truth. I'm asking that you would give me a hunger to pursue truth. That you would give me boldness to face the narratives that I've adopted that are not true. I'm asking God you'd give me courage that this year would be a different year. This decade would be a different decade. I desire to fall in love with you as you are. I desire to face you as you are. I desire to be holy as you are holy. I believe that you've begun this work in me. Now I'm asking you to bring it to completion. I believe that you are the author and the perfecter of my faith. Having begun a good work in me, do it now. I redouble my efforts to seek you in the word, your word, and prayer. If you said it, that settles it. If you said it, that settles it. I am a doer of the word, not a hearer only. 
thank you. Thank you for a church that desires to walk in truth. Keep my pastor sensitive to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I threw that, amen. I threw that in at the end because I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray that I don't just start teaching some narrative, something that sounds good, but that we teach the Word of God. Thanks for listening. For more teachings and videos, visit celebrationmen.org.